Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is uh, Professor Garrett Jones, who has previously appeared on the program. He is an associate professor at George Mason University and the BB&T professor for the study of capitalism at the Mercatus Center. Uh, what, is, what does the BB&T stand for? Oh, it's a uh, major bank in the United States, about the tenth largest, and uh, they've funded, uh, they've generously funded through their philanthropy a number of endowed or otherwise funded chairs in often in economics and philosophy departments. Okay. All right. Interesting. And uh, uh, Garrett is also the author of several books, including the newly released 10% Less Democracy, which is the subject of today's conversation. So welcome to the program. Welcome back, Garrett. Very happy to be here. Glad to be back. Okay. So uh, it's an interesting title, 10% Less Democracy. Perhaps you could give us uh, an explanation of, of what you mean by that and what the book is about. Well, um, you know, I emphasize, you know, in the first chapter of the book that uh, democracy is fantastic. It um, has a lot of obvious benefits, but it is something that it's important to get the right dose of. Um, Just because something is fantastic doesn't mean you can't have too much of it. I think it's Jason Brennan, the philosopher, who says that democracy is a bit like dessert. It's delicious. It's great, but you can have too much. And I make the case that the richest, most democratic nations in the world Uh, could get a lot of benefits uh, with very little cost if they just made a few of their institutions a little bit less democratic. I I really draw on the analogy of the Laffer curve, the idea that, you know, if a country sets its tax rate at zero, it won't raise any money. And if a government raises its tax rate at 100%, it won't raise any money. But there's some kind of bliss point in between it could raise the most amount of money. And just as uh, taxes can be inefficiently high, so too, I think a level of democracy can be inefficiently high. Our nation might be on the wrong side of the democracy Africa. Okay, so maybe we could, uh, maybe it would be helpful to define what you mean by democracy, because uh, while it seems to be a simple concept, I definitely see a lot of people for whom democracy seems to mean uh, whatever they like, and yes, you know, if they don't like something, that means it's under uh, undemocratic. In fact, I recall seeing a book recently the title of which was The People Versus Democracy. <laughs> uh, yes. So so what, how would you define democracy in the context of this book? Democracy is the mass involvement of citizens and their elected representatives in the running of government. Um, the ideal of uh, pure democracy has been closest, uh, the closest we ever came to achieving in human history. Pure democracy is probably ancient Greece, where the people could vote on basically anything they wanted to, where legislative terms were extremely short, where almost all major decisions were made by the masses themselves. And modern technology makes it possible for us to be even more democratic than the ancient Greeks. And yet nobody's really pushing for us to be able to choose a Federal Reserve interest rate policy based on smartphone plebiscites. So nobody seems to want 100% pure democracy where the masses are voting on everything or even where our elected representatives are voting on everything. 
Um, we could easily replace the Supreme Court with systematic polling, but nobody wants to do that. So nobody wants 100% democracy. Um, and nobody, at least I, don't want 0% democracy. So the question is, where do we want to be somewhere in between? So I argue, I point out that there's quite a few ways for nations to be in practice a little bit less democratic. Um, the Senate in the, in the United States, the Senate is less democratic than the House. Six-year terms are less democratic than two-year terms. The Founding Fathers knew this. They talked about it in the Federalist Paper. Delegating a lot of power to judges and economists, as we do with um, the Supreme Court and with the Federal Reserve, that's less democratic than having Congress make all of those decisions. So there are quite a few ways to treat democracy as a continuum rather than an either-or decision. And I think we should try to figure out where it's where the best place is to be on that continuum. It's it's interesting you use the word delegation because I believe that there's a uh, uh, a case coming before the Supreme Court about the this idea of the delegation doctrine, uh-huh. and some 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 legislative functions should be strictly legislative, and that there should not be an ability to delegate to the administrative branch, the executive branch. Um, but that's been the norm, I guess, probably since uh, well beyond the Great Society, all, all the way back to the New Deal. What do you say about that? Because that I don't know if that's your your model or what you're sort of striving for, but that would be a form of uh, making our our governance less democratic is by delegating more and more uh, to the executive branch. Yes, and um, the ex- uh, especially when it's the machinery of bureaucracy in the executive branch doing the work, that is definitely less democratic. And um, if it's just Congress handing things over to the president, well, then you're handing things from one elected official to another. But um, when you're handing things from legislative branch to a sort of anonymous set of bureaucrats, that is definitely less democratic. And chapter two of my book, actually chapter three of my book, is about how... um, the United States and many of the rich countries made a fantastic decision when politicians decided to get out of the business of running monetary policy, and they handed it over to a bunch of anonymous bureaucrats who happened to be my fellow economists. So that's one of the best decisions that the rich countries have made in recent decades when it comes to economic policy, and we should do more of that. Um, a lot of people, especially on the political right, get worried about this. They think, oh, anonymous bureaucrats are going to ruin my life. Well, the alternative is not anonymous bureaucrats versus pure unfettered markets. The alternative is anonymous bureaucrats versus elected officials. And when the competition is anonymous bureaucrats versus elected officials, the anonymous bureaucrats start looking a whole lot better. Are there, are there other areas of policy and uh, lawmaking, rulemaking that you think would be particularly would benefit from more delegation? I mean, I'm, I, my background is in tax law and that's a, an area mm-hmm. where there's, there's always a, a, a lot of the, the, uh, the details is left to the treasury. Yes. Um, you'll pass the past legislation, but then the, the regulations are actually proposed by, by the, the agency that's enforcing the rules. Yes. Um, are there other areas that you, that you think this would be a, in a good approach? Yeah, um, I actually um, discuss Alan Blinder's uh, proposals along these lines. Um, he, uh, he was Alan Blinder, Princeton economist, worked at the Federal Reserve and in the Clinton White House. And uh, for quite a long time, he's proposed that we should have a federal tax board that works a lot like the uh, Federal Reserve, uh, where we could have a, a mixture of economists, accountants, and lawyers with very long terms, Congress confirmed by the Senate. 
um, appointed by the president, excuse me, confirmed by the Senate. And um, we would leave Congress and the president to work out the broad parameters of, po- of tax policy, like the top 1% should, play, should pay 30% of the taxes. Uh, the system should be have a certain degree of progressivity. And then let this panel of this tax board, this independent tax board with long terms, let them decide on the rules. So when people lament the fact that con- that the that Congress um, passes tax laws and then Treasury comes up with a bunch of regulations that look like they differ from the law, that's because the legislature doesn't want to do its job in the first place. The legislature could pass laws that were in, written in minute detail, but they're not really interested in, in working on detailed laws. I know this to some extent. I worked for a U.S. senator um, actually on tax policy, and I saw how a little bit of how the sausage is made on, in, in the world of tax. Legislators want to stick to the big principles um, as a general rule. Sometimes they're trying to get in uh, little uh, benefits for, for special groups that they're interested in. But then after that, they're happy to hand this off to somebody else. And if I have a choice between handing it off to the current IRS or Treasury versus handing it off to Alan Blinder's Federal Tax Board with a bunch of people who have 14-year terms, I'd rather do the latter. What would you say to critics that say that, as you've said, that you know the Congress isn't really doing its job in the sense of they don't they don't want to do the heavy lifting of, of detailed policy and lawmaking, and they just want to pass the buck to these agencies? What would you say to people that want to push things the opposite direction and say that we need to have greater incentive for? Congress to do the role of legislating and disincentivize or throw up roadblocks so that they can't spend their time uh, on Fox News or quickly turn their uh, uh, their former seats into you know becoming a columnist or something. What do you say to that type of critique? Um, it's always good to preach for politicians to be more righteous, but we don't have a reliable formula that I know of to make them more righteous. They're not interested in doing the detail work of legislation. And so we should not hope that there will be some miracle or some road to Damascus moment where they decide, oh, my God, I've been making a mistake all these decades. Please let me spend years diving into the federal tax code. That's not going to happen. So maybe, as you suggest, maybe there's some ways, some things you could do, like you could say, you're not allowed to go anywhere else. You have to you have to stay here and eat your vegetables before you can go outside and play. Maybe there's some form of regulation you can do that. But I think what legislators are best at is aggregating the views of the people on big emotional issues, um, like say tax progressivity, and then then they should hand the details off to better experts than they're currently handing them off to now. Um, I think that's roughly what Alan Blinder is saying. I don't want to um, put words in his mouth. His his own book is great on this. Um, but uh, yeah, more having more of government work like the Federal Reserve would be great. I don't want the I don't want Congress having quarterly debates over what interest rate policy should be. I don't want them diving into the details of monetary policy, even though the even though the Constitution gives them authority over monetary policy. Um, similarly, I, I'm not crazy about them having uh, more influence over tax policy. Well, let me let me ask about that, because um, to my way of thinking, there is one basic argument in favor of experts or non-political people making decisions. And then there's one big argument in favor of having elected uh, officials doing it. And the 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 big 
Mm -hmm. argument in favor of the experts is that they know more, right? Uh, Particularly if you're talking about technical Mm -hmm. subjects, uh, you know, not big picture emotional Mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, Knowing knowing things, you know, having a depth of knowledge, having really studied the matter uh, could be very important, right? Uh, On the other hand, the big argument in terms of having elected officials do it is accountability, right? So if the Federal Reserve, uh, if, you know, let's say they screw up monetary policy and it leads to a financial crisis or a Great Depression, right, which is something that uh, gets debated from Mm -hmm. now and again, Uh, they are precisely because they are more insulated from uh, political forces and from popular will, uh, they are less likely to feel the brunt of that. Whereas if uh, politicians screw up, they make a mistake, uh, They there's a, a greater accountability mechanism for them to either see that it's in their interest to change course, uh, or they get thrown out and replaced by other people who want to do something something else. So why do you think that Given where we are now, uh, the that uh, accountability is overemphasized as opposed to knowledge or technical expertise. Well, um, I I do agree that I, I that uh, accountability. I do believe that accountability is overrated. Um, that accountability often leads to bad outcomes. And when it comes to central bank independence, for instance, we actually have a lot of evidence on this. There's also a theory that says that accountability leads to worse results. And a lot of the modern game theory, political economy work gives us theoretical arguments for this. Uh, Basically, it's a uh, if you're obsessed with the short run, you can't focus on the long run. But rather than discuss a bunch of theoretical arguments, I can point to the serious data driven literature on central bank independence. Um, When we look across countries at and we compare countries that have very Uh, central banks that are very independent of the political process versus those that are closely tied to the political process. It looks like central bank independence, handing things over to anonymous bureaucrats like my fellow economists, looks like a free lunch. You get lower inflation, more stable inflation, your recessions are no worse, and perhaps you have fewer financial crises, certainly not more financial crises. So when people say, hey, look, these economist experts got us into financial crisis X or recession Y, I say, hey, look at the alternative. If the alternative is the voters, if the alternative is elected officials being in charge of the central banks, I can point to real world evidence that when you make the financial system, the monetary system more accountable to the to the voters, you get worse outcomes overall, not better. So I don't think experts now I should mention, I don't think that expertise is the only reason to believe that um, delegation is a good idea. I think just being less accountable in the short run can be its own reward. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the economist Ken Rogoff of Harvard, he has a theoretical argument about this, about why you would want to delegate monetary policy to people with essentially more of a focus on the long run and why that would get you better outcomes overall. And I think that theoretical argument that delegating to people who aren't worrying about each day's news cycle is... In a lot of areas of policy, gets you a lot of benefit. Very least. the independence of central banks is uh, a great treasure, and we should try to take that that idea of 
politically independent central banks and spread it more widely. How would this play with lobbying? Uh, you know, if you have these uh, executives, uh, if you have uh, these different agencies where they have broad rulemaking authority uh, and, and because the legislators are not getting into the details, doesn't that invite uh, maybe a little bit of regulatory capture where uh, various industries are going to want to um, have their say with uh, these executive branches, whether it's, say, tax policy or envir environmental policy? They're going to want to have their version of the facts, their position known very well and lobbied for in front of these um, in front of these bodies. Is that a is that a good thing? And is that another example of being less accountable, less democratic? And is there an, an argument for that? Well, certainly that's totally possible, right? It's very likely going to happen that like, uh, a lot of uh, bureaucrats, and it certainly must happen to some substantial degree at the Federal Reserve. I mean, we see hints and shadows of it in the data and in some empirical research. So the question is not, will bad things happen? Um, will corrupt things happen under this set of reforms? The question is, well, in the aggregate, will the whole package of benefits and costs, do that, does it balance out to making um, delegation look better? And like I said, with central bank independence, it looks, I mean, obviously, you know, the Federal Reserve, they're the people who print the money, right? Metaphorically. And so you would imagine they'd be a huge target for lobbying the world over and other central banks that should be there as well. And so it seems right for sort of all kinds of outcomes where the central bankers are going to like, give a few billion dollars away for free to different elite bankers around the world in hopes of getting lobbying gigs later themselves. Maybe that's happening to some degree. What I care about is the fact that on the whole, it's working out better when you delegate the power to them than when you leave the power to the politicians. So the question isn't, are there costs to a 10% less democracy? The question is whether the benefits outweigh the costs. And at least in the areas of central banking and very likely judicial independence, it looks like less democracy works better than more democracy. Let me ask, because I, I think that you are probably on fairly strong ground, relatively speaking. Uh, I, well, I, I think that even mo mo most people who consider themselves, you know, dyed in the wool, pro-democracy or whatever, they accept the need for an independent judiciary a strong independent judiciary, and to the extent that people have really thought about the issue, uh, I, there doesn't seem to be a widespread movement to end central bank independence either. Uh, yeah, both of which are quite undemocratic. Correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the, the, the way you can tell a very successful restriction on democracy or limitation of democracy is that people consider it democracy. Uh, so... Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. So I, that, that, that keeps coming up when I talk about the books, ideas with people. I describe a few of the different ideas like longer terms for the member for the House of Representatives. And people tell me, oh, that wouldn't be less democratic. Six year terms, totally democratic. That's no reduction in democracy at all. And I say, well, then let's do it. So, <laughs> right. I, I even uh, you know, there, there was a controversy a little while ago in. Poland, because uh, the government there was taking some steps that would have, yes. uh, you know, decreased the independence of their judiciary. And that was, yes. so if you read all the coverage of it, it this was like attacks on democracy, right? By, mm -hmm. 
by making the uh, judiciary more politically accountable. So uh, yeah, it was making it more democratic, but right. that's uh, sometimes a bad idea. So yeah, yeah, there's when people talk about policy reforms and democracies, um, and what the countries we call modern democracies. Um, reformers just bend over backwards to say that whatever anti-democratic reform they're trying to push through is actually a version of true democracy. Right. And right. part of what I'm hoping to do with this book is strip away those obfuscations and just talk about the benefits, the underappreciated benefits of moderate degrees of oligarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very good. Very good. I don't know uh, as a persuasive strategy if that is the best it's certainly uh you know honest and helpful to clear thinking uh but uh but well in the in the last chapter of the book the conclusion is the only time i really i dive into uh in most depth um what political philosophers have had to say over the centuries you know and the ancients and machiavelli alike both took for granted that good, many of them at least took for granted the idea that good government was some mixture of democracy and oligarchy because to them, democracy meant Athens. And so anything that involved delegating powers to groups for a long time, like whether it's the Senate or the Supreme Court, that was older. And so they had a more candid language for discussing this. And I think that's, that can lead to better policy reforms. Um, so in a way, what I'm trying to do is reinvigorate the ancient way and the medieval way of discussing good governance. Yeah. So... Um... Let me add, so I, I want to touch on a couple things because one is you have described the alternative as uh, government, you know, government by experts or faceless anonymous bureaucrats, uh, although they, they do tend to have faces, I, I, I will admit. Yeah, I've, uh, I've met some of them. They're nice people. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know that I want to go that far, but they definitely have faces. <laughs> They definitely have faith, is that, you know. Um, so, it, it, you know, the, the, the choice that you posit and the alternatives that you consider are political governance versus, uh, or, you know, like Congress versus the Federal Reserve or uh, Congress versus the Supreme Court or something. Um, but two al- other alternatives uh, that are al- often mentioned in this regard are, one, having things handled through the private market yes uh, absolutely perhaps enforced you know it, 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 you know perhaps in the same way that we have in the constitution various restrictions on what the government can do uh you could have and depending on who you talk to uh we do have serious limitations at least on what the federal government can be doing to interfere mm-hmm. you know in the market and then the the other option uh uh that is often discussed is well. I think the the real issue is not. It, it's less in, it's less important whether you're talking about political versus appointed. The real issue is national versus local, right? Localism. That if you push uh, power and issues down to smaller government units as far as possible, that that will increase. Um, that will improve your outcomes, both because, you know, you're increasing the good kind of accountability and because you make it easier for people to, you know, it, it, like if I live in Austin, I, which I do, uh, but if things were getting too bad, I could always move to mm-hmm. Round Rock or Pflugerville or one of the other surrounding suburbs. And uh, that would get me out of 
uh, out from under of at least some of the some of the craziness of the Austin City Council. Um, so you know you have an option there. So I, I don't know if these are issues that you discuss in the book, but uh, you know it, it, at least with the with the market one, why why aren't those viable alternatives as opposed to having to choose between you know uh, Ben Bernanke and uh, Chuck uh, that's, I mean, I'm a huge fan of markets. I want more markets in more of my life. This, and this book is not about that. So this book is about given the government you have, who should be in charge of it. And, um, given the, the scope and powers of government that you have in your society, who should be administering it. So I'm always happy to preach the merits of greater markets in a broad variety of areas. Um, but this, book just is not about that. I, I don't need to write the one millionth book saying, yay, markets are awesome. <laughs> Instead, I decided to write the first book saying, hey, um, in the modern world, oligarchy is a little bit underrated. So that's my point when writing books is to write a book that somebody else hasn't written, not the one millionth version of a book that somebody already has. Yeah. Okay. Uh so let me then uh, flip it around and ask from the other side, because your book is, oh, well, actually, before I get to that, do you have in the book, you, you want to go through some of the specific uh, reforms that you had? You mentioned, I think, longer, longer terms. Yeah, longer terms. Are, yeah. are there in there that you mentioned? Are there other, you know, in terms of achieving significant Yes. Well, for instance, I was a Senate staffer a long time ago, a couple of times. And um, there I saw firsthand that when senators are less than two years out from a, from a re-election bid, um, they behave a lot differently. There's actually a term on the Hill for this. They're known as being in cycle. And um, so I, I saw that the Senate, that Senate, the cowardice of politicians creeps up. They pander more to the voters. Um, somebody, some people would call that they are more, some people will say well, they're more <laughs> accountable to the voters. Um, when they're two years out from an election. Um, but uh, so I noticed this at the time, and it turns out there's been academic research on this. It, and politicians, by the standards of economists, appear to vote, vote worse just before an election. So if that's true, one way to uh, make government a little bit better is to have fewer elections. And lengthening terms is one way to do that. If you're going to um, be pandering the last two years, then maybe you should have a four or a six or an eight year term. So that's one idea that I push, again, with some evidence. Um, I also, perhaps the most out-of-the-box idea I have in the book is that uh, I have a chapter titled Bondholders as a Separate and Co-Equal Branch of Government. I say that treasury bondholders, people who hold the, your country's sovereign bonds, should uh, be given some kind of serious voice in government. It could be something as simple as a council of treasury bondholders that meets every six months and votes on you know, neutral on non-binding resolutions about what the U.S. government should do. It could be as something as more serious, like giving one seat in the Senate for every ten percent in the government debt to GDP ratio. Um, but some way of listening to bondholders, people who hold, say, long-term bonds, ten years or longer, people who have a long-term interest in the U.S. government's financial health and stability. Um, they have a strong perspective that is valuable and underappreciated. And if the U.S. gets in big financial trouble, they are going to be our bosses anyway. So we should listen to them um, a little bit right now. So that's just a couple of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And those are U.S. bondholders, correct? Yeah. So people who hold U.S. treasuries are basic. They are just as 
just as um, stockholders and bondholders in corporations have a voice in how a government, how the corporation is run, I think that U.S. Treasury bondholders should have a voice in how the U.S. government is run. Okay, so um, if, if, just just to be clear, yeah, if a foreign government say owned a lot of long-term yeah. treasuries, then they also would be entitled to this representation. Yeah, you could you could say that if foreign governments hold it, they don't count or something, right? You could throw their votes out if you wanted right. to, right? People can make yeah. a lot of rules if they want to. But I do think that listening, but these foreign countries that hold our bonds, they have an interest in getting repaid, right? I mean, they would really like that money back. And if they behave especially badly, we can always just say, hey, we're not going to pay you, right? This happens somewhat frequently around the world, um, that your foreign your foreign Foreigners who hold your government bonds are actually, you don't need them, you know, they need you. So, um, but they are, they have an interest in the, people who hold U.S. treasuries have an interest in the U.S. government bringing in high revenues and having low costs and being fiscally sound. So they have an interest in raising U.S. productivity. They have an interest in uh, minimizing government spending. And they're interested in the long run in a way that politicians and members of the House of Representatives probably are not. And so um, good corporate governance, good corporate finance thinking um, creates room to listen to your investors. And I think modern democracies should listen to their investors as well. It's what I, it's part of what I call the stakeholder theory of the state. Voters are stakeholders in the U.S. government. Bondholders are also stakeholders in the U.S. government. Both should be given a voice. Right now, the bondholders only get a voice when a crisis hits. That's listening far too late. So let me ask things from the other direction, because your book is called yeah. 10% Less Democracy. Uh, but you do make you yeah. know, some, some evidence-based arguments that, um, you know, as you say, accountability is overrated and you know, there's, a, there's an upside to oligarchy or, or, or whatnot. So you know, why not? 20% less democracy. Why not 30%, right? Certainly, if you look historically, uh, the level of democracy that we have mm-hmm. in the United States is much higher than it was at the time of the founding, um, for example. And cer- certainly, if you look throughout all of human history, you know, the great, some of the mm-hmm. great civilizations uh, uh, were either. Uh, you know, empires or kingships or Mm -hmm. were highly restricted, you know, oligarchic types of democracies. And even today, if you look at places like China, um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, other countries that that have authoritarian or, you know, I know people go back and forth about how how democratic, you know, where where some place like Singapore should be placed on the uh, democracy uh, chain because you know they they have free and fair elections, but they the ruling party has won them all, <laughs> and they do gain the system pretty heavily. Why stop at ten percent? Why not you know twenty thirty uh, more less democracy? Well, yeah, this uh, so this is my, my chapter one is called the big benefits of a small dose of democracy. There are there are three big things I could point to that are reasons you want to have a whole lot of democracy in your country. The most important I'd say comes from uh, the work of Nobel laureate Mark Descent who pointed out that there are essentially, there has essentially never been a famine in a democracy, um, in the modern world at least. So the citizens and democracies, for all of their flaws, they do not like seeing their fellow citizens starve to death. 
And so it, it appears that governments that have just a minimum level of democracy, competitive elections and a free press, this is what Amartya Sen found was seems to be the, the bare minimum requirements. If your country has competitive elections and a free press, then you don't have famines. Um, you'll have a lot of other, you may have a lot of other problems, but that's one problem you can avoid. And to my mind, famines are something definitely worth avoiding. Even if it required a big sacrifice, which it doesn't, it would be worth making that sacrifice to avoid famines. Um, similarly, Bill Easterly's done work showing that one great thing about democracies is that they don't kill their own citizens. Um, and But he did show that you don't need pure democracy to get that. If you're just in the top, I believe it's the top quartile, the top 25% of levels of democracy by global standards, you essentially don't kill any of your own citizens. So I think that, that number can serve as sort of a metaphor for what's going on here. All you need to be is in the top 25% of democracy to have um, a very low rate of killing your own citizens. And that's a really great, that's a really great trait to have, not killing your citizens. So if you're in the top 25%, you're good. The uh, most democratic countries in the world are at the top end of that top 25%. So if you're knocking off 10%, you're still going to be in the top 25. Um, third element is that there's some evidence, a little more controversial, that um, democracies are less likely to go to war, especially with other democracies. Um, it's a little hard to tell what's cause and what's effect. Um, that's debated in the literature, but the democratic peace theory deserves some attention. Um, so... There are some big benefits of having democracy, and we should be reluctant to give those up. Um, I tend to think, I mean, I'm a big fan of Singapore. I've been there twice. I've spoken there. But one way to put it is it looks like Singapore has gotten lucky. A lot of other countries with that low level of democracy, most countries with, with that low level of democracy, are likely to have a lot of very egregious human rights violations and um, things that we wouldn't want to put up with. And contrary to a lot of, um, you know, Stories about, say, China or Singapore. Overall, the relationship between uh, the question of whether democracy causes prosperity rather than just correlates with it is very muddled. Um, the best evidence in the literature, as I read it, is that overall democracy does not make your country richer. Um, again, I try to review this in a, in a non technical way. Um, but certainly, small changes in the level of democracy, the kind of things I'm talking about in the book, Aren't, uh, aren't likely to have much of an effect on prosperity per se. But overall, having at least a moderate degree of democracy is crucial for um, avoiding famines and for reducing the risk of your government killing its own citizens. Those are great benefits that I would not want to jeopardize. All right, so I wanted to close uh, with something slightly different. And on a recent episode, we had your colleague, your George Mason colleague, Brian Kaplan on to discuss his latest book, The Open Borders, The Case for Open Borders. Mm -hmm. Great and, book. Recommend it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very uh, fun book. Uh, very informative. And you, of course, uh, make an appearance in the book. Uh, yes. As a blue alien uh, with a kind of, yes. uh, you know. A, a very big brain. Very big brain. Yes, that's right. And uh, he, of course, is responding to uh, arguments that you have made uh, about the effect that immigration would have on uh, the the health of institutions, and uh, particularly uh, the stuff that we just that you discuss in your previous book, uh, Hive Mind. Uh, mm -hmm. While your nation's IQ matters more than yours, is, is that the mm -hmm. yeah? Um, Very close, yeah. 
yeah. So and uh, his his in uh, Brian's book, his response to you is basically, well, if we take uh, if we take your math, then um, uh, even even if we assume kind of uh, you know. Uh, I won't. I won't exactly call it a worst case scenario, but even if we, we yeah. take your assumptions of, you know, lower, you know, immigrate, lots of immigration from, uh, lots of low skilled immig- immigration would lower the nation's IQ. That would degrade our institutions or whatnot. Uh, mm-hmm. But it would still, that would be swamped by the amount of extra GDP that you you would have by moving workers from low productivity to high productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, countries and i know there, there there's been a kind of back and forth you i believe have a paper out talking about this and and sort of a fun the, paper i'd say more like a homework assignment yes that's right yes yeah uh well you know economics is fun now right yes. you can do this stuff uh so maybe you know uh with that is a little bit of uh hazy background for people maybe you could go into your perspective on this particular debate between you and brian yeah. So I, again, I really recommend the the book. It's great to see uh, fantastic, important ideas discussed in a in a sort of very readable, attractive format like that. And I'm pleased to make my first appearance in, in a graphic novel. Um, but so yeah, in the middle of the book, um, you know, Kaplan says, "Okay, let's take on this idea that um, if a lot of people from countries with low test scores, I don't need to use the word IQ because all the test scores correlate: international, math, science, literacy scores." They correlate about 0.8 or 0.9 with these cross-country IQ scores. So I'll just talk about test scores. Um, so a lot of folks from lower-scoring countries move to the U.S. Um, and let's, for the sake of argument, assume that the scores don't don't rise up um, to the country to the levels of East Asia or the U.S. Um, what would happen in the U.S.? What would happen to pick an extreme case, which he does? This is Kaplan's case, not mine. Everybody in the world moves to the U.S., what happens to global output? And he does a back-of-the-envelope calculation um, using more or less my, really my numbers. Let's, and by that measure, um, world output would double. And since we're holding the number of people constant, it's, that's world output per capita. Now, I think it's worth thinking through where that comes from. Like, I actually like to dive into the mechanism. I'm not just a correlationist. I don't just look at simple models and say, well, the simple model gave me this answer. Let's, I'm done. It turns out that what happens in that model is what happens in so much of the open borders, the case for open borders, which is there's something hidden in the model that says some places just have unexplained higher levels of productivity than other places. And it is de facto attached to the land. And if that's true, so for instance, let's say that places that have access to a lot of waterways um, are just more productive than places that are landlocked. That, that seems to be true. Um, if that's the case, then the world would be richer if we just if people just moved away from places that are landlocked and moved toward places that are close to waterways. Um, question is, is the U.S.'s very high level of productivity caused by um, something that's that fixed? Or instead, is it more likely that IQ is just one difference between America and other countries. Test scores are just one difference between America and other countries. And that there's some other things outside the model that matter a lot. And um, so when, when, you know, a couple of billion people move to the U.S., um, 
test scores would probably go down for a while. And probably a lot of other things would change too. And maybe those other things would change our productivity. Now I'm saying this just verbally, like right now, because I'm on a podcast, I had some uh, nice uh, tweet storm about it a while back. But the, uh, the case for open borders tends to push this way, which is that they look at one particular channel, like say in this case, the test score channel, and they say everything that everything that makes America productive that isn't test scores is purely and permanently attached to the land. That's just a toy model. But if you're going to make the entire case for open borders rest on that story, um, you should start inspecting that mechanism quite a bit more. So I tend to think that, um, you know, like a lot of economists, I think institutes matter a lot. I think IQ, test scores, cognitive skills are one set of ingredients in building good institutions. But there are a lot of other things that matter as well. And um, I don't think that geography per se is what makes America particularly productive. Um, that helps, but it is not most of the story. So um, pro-open borders cases tend to focus on one measure, like say test scores or trust or savings rates, something like that, one simple thing at a time, and everything else gets put into this residual basket, this exogenous productivity shock, this unexplained fact, this mystery meat of national productivity. And when everything is just going into two bins, I, put, I better put a lot of weight on investigating what's in that second bin. And once we look into that second bin, I think that what you tend to find is that there are a lot of other human factors, cultural factors, sociological factors that matter for national productivity. And open borders would be likely to disrupt those factors as well. So it's very good. I'm very pleased that Kaplan is talking about the... Uh, the importance of test scores in driving national productivity. That's I'm very pleased to have him talk about that. Um, but thinking of models where you're putting everything in the world into the thing you're noticing and the things you're not noticing um, tends to make it very difficult to draw clear policy conclusions. So I just, um, I think the case for open borders is not ready for prime time in an important way because uh, multi-factor Multi-factor drivers of national productivity are very difficult to discuss in a two-factor format. All right. Our guest today has been Garrett Jones. Uh, his book, 10% Less Democracy, is available now. So go out and buy it. And uh, Garrett, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be here again. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.